podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good evening and welcome to Slogging It. It is the absolute pleasure of myself, Simon and Eugene to welcome multiple Ashes and World Cup winning player, global franchise coach and absolute pioneer of women's cricket globally, uh, Lydia Greenway. Lydia, absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. No, hi guys, no, no problem at all. Look, looking forward to, to having a good old chat this evening. <laughs> you look a bit scared saying that, so I'm not sure exactly how excited you are <laughs> with bated breath. Um, we, we tend to start off you know, the same way with all of our guests. Um, just asking how you first initially got into cricket. I know your dad uh, loved his cricket, and, and so do you want to just talk us through a little bit of that, your first memories? Yeah, definitely. I think for me, my path into the game was very similar to a lot of girls my age. I had a male relative who happened to be my dad and he was a good club cricketer. So my weekends were spent up at our local cricket club um, in Kent, Hayes Cricket Club, where we would just watch my dad play. Um, we try and copy him in the nets. So I've got a brother and a sister and um, yeah, just a really great childhood, to be honest. Um and that's where I tried lots of other sports, but cricket was was sort of the main one um, that I really enjoyed and was quite good at as well. So just sort of stuck at it for that bit longer. Um, but I didn't have it as much at school. Or, um, I, I did as I got older in secondary school, but um, I think it's it's much better now. You um, you played in the Kent boys from under 11s to under 16s. Um, that must have been a bit strange, really. But um, do you think that helped you pave your way throughout your career as you, as you kind of went through it? Was that was that something that helped? Yeah, I think playing the boys' cricket, um, most of it was with my club, Hayes. But I think that was sort of my um, training arena, as um, coaches will be familiar with the overtraining technique, which is where you train harder than you will ever have to play. So boys cricket did that for me. Um, the bowlers were quicker. Um, the, the batters hit the ball harder. They were quicker in the field. Um, umpires would give you out when, when you weren't out because they didn't think you should be playing. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Parents would make comments. So for me, that was, uh, it just made me um, a much tougher cricketer. Um, and I loved it as well. And it helped that I was, you know, quite good friends with, with the boys that I played with. You, you got into the first um, woman's um, side at the age of 14. Um, you know, how, how did you get into that? What was the trials like? Uh, you know, talk us through that process that you sort of went through after playing boys cricket for so long. Yeah, so I think I was 14 um, when I went to my to the Kent Women's Senior Trials. Um, I, it was quite informal. I just got invited to go along um, to a, a cricket club where they were hosting the trials um, because the following week was the county championships. And at that time, it was a five-day competition. You played five 50-over games in a row. Um, oh. And actually, you know, we did that. Um, and that was it. That was our county season. Um, and so I went along to the, the trial. Um, that was the first time I met Charlotte Edwards as well. Um, and, yeah, managed to, to get picked. And I was on my way up to Cambridge. And so that was my first real experience of playing county cricket. And it was probably a good training part to be on physically in terms of recovering to then play again and again and again and again so that was good back then was um was was cricket i mean was it were you paid as a cricketer how, how what was the sort of process to go through i mean i don't want to delve too much into the detail of it but you know was it was it something that was 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 regularly done or, or how, how did that process work 
Yeah, so I, I guess sort of the the journey that I had in terms of the professionalism of the, of the game, when I, county cricket wasn't paid, still isn't, um, uh, but when you play for your country, so I was 17 when I got picked to play for England, and the, the funding that we got was lottery funding, so it was, you know, it wouldn't cover your mortgage on a house if you had one, um, but it did give you a bit of pocket money, and then from there, we had a really good initiative um, linking up with Chance to Shine. So a lot of people will be familiar with, with the work that they do in state schools. And, and that way, we got paid for coaching. Um, we had flexibility when we could go on to tours. Um, and we actually had a better salary um, than when we had lottery funding. And obviously now, um, the central contracts came in in 2014 for England. Um, and now it's at the level where domestic players are now becoming professional so um it's been on a journey it's, it's developed quite quickly as well i think in a short space of time which, which makes it really exciting you mentioned there, so. um obviously meeting charlotte uh, who is obviously a huge name in terms of english women's cricket and achieved some fantastic things as english captain um must have been great to be able to learn from someone who was such a force in the women's game from such an early age when you when you first got into that kent side yeah, I was really lucky to have played with her for literally all of my career. We played county cricket together. We played for our country. We played in a lot of the sort of the Kia Super League um, when that was up and running. Um, and so the way that she went about things, her training, her mentality, her attitude, um, you know, if, if you weren't doing what you needed to be doing, then you'd know about it quite quickly. So um, <laughs> she was great she, for any young cricketer. You know, you knew that you had to work hard and, nothing came easy and she you know she still is a, a real role model in the game and it's it's great that she's in coaching now because she's she's an in, invaluable asset to to the game was she incredibly demanding as a captain right from you know i i imagine that she would have picked you out as someone certainly to watch for the for the future at a very young age was, was she someone that spent a lot of time with you trying to give you guidance and stuff like you know treated you as one of them, you know, almost as if you were an adult and expected you to live and die by the same standards that everyone else did? Or did, you know, she didn't give you any more leeway being younger, I imagine? Um, no, she was really good in that way. Is that She was very hard, but very fair. So when I first broke into the England team, or even before that, she used to work for Hunts County Bats. So she would help make the bat, she'd change all the grit, she could tell you anything about a cricket bat and oh, wow. um, she really supported me. She she said to me, right, get your dad, drive up to, to Hunts County and um, we'll sort you out a cricket bat. So she actually sorted me out with my first bat sponsorship. Um, oh, wow. So she su supported me massively with that and was always so giving of her time um, for me personally. Um, but you're right, I think you... The way that she was, she wasn't. She didn't tell you how to be. She just led the way in how to be, which I know is a mass, massive cliche. That's what people say about all good leaders: is they they let what they do talk for themselves. But um, she she falls into that category as well. And um, yeah, she was just sort of world class, really, in everything she did. Yeah, um, you played for Kent for sixteen years, from two thousand to twenty sixteen, before retiring that summer. Um, what what sort of brought that decision on? Was it what what sort of got you to that point? Yeah, I think a mixture of things really. Um, one was that I had been playing for quite a long time, um, so from quite a young age. Like in the women's game, you see that quite a lot. You see the girls 
start a, a career earlier or at a younger age and tend to maybe finish a bit earlier. Um, I think that's changing a bit now. But um, for me personally, it was probably a decision that last took about 12 months, maybe even 18 months. Um, so it was a mixture of um, we had changes of coaches that were happening. Um, and so that affected, you know, whenever a new coach comes in, you're suddenly having to you know, start again effectively, um, which is great. It keeps you on your toes. Um, but I, I think, you know, there, there are different factors. Form as well, um, you start to question yourself, even if you are good enough. I think as soon as any levels of doubt creep in, um, yeah. that's that's quite dangerous because you engage with thoughts that you've never had before. Um, and suddenly those thoughts become more and more frequent um, and you question yourself a lot more. So, um yeah, eventually I got to a decision which I was really happy with um, and, yeah, yeah, really pleased with, with everything that, that happened in my career and but obviously it's nice to, to move on as well. Very successful one. Yeah. You were first picked as a 17-year-old to tour Australia. I mean, I can't even think about touring any country at that age of 17, but never mind <laughs> to go and tour Australia from that perspective. What, was, that, was that a baptism as a fire or what was the sort of, um, what was your mentality going to go and play the, the Aussies in their own backyard? Yeah, it was amazing, really. I think it was probably good that I was so young because my parents, I dread to think how they were. They never really let on, but I think they were um, pretty nervous on my behalf. I had to work out how to how the flight transfers worked and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then when you're out there, I, I only really knew uh, Charlotte Edwards when I joined up with the team. Um, I knew of the other players. Um, and so I had to sort of, get um I guess acquainted with them quite quickly um and then we were playing Australia who had been so dominant for a, a long long time um I think my introduction to playing them was a bouncer from Catherine Fitzpatrick and I ended up on my backside um which was, um, which was a nice introduction uh, to international cricket but um no it was obviously a really good experience um, that was the very much the start of what turned out to be a glittering international career uh, 225 games, five Ashes victories, two World Cups. And um, I I mean, I guess this must be one of your greatest achievements, being named as the Women's Cricketer of the Year in 2010. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty decent list of achievements to be able to, you know, <laughs> now consider, you know, with all the great things that you're doing now, just to be able to look back and go, wow, I mean, I achieved some really, really cool stuff in the game. More than L3 would ever, yeah. uh, you know, our dreams, a dream of achieving even a quarter of the stuff you managed to do in real life. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's obviously great. And I think, um, yeah, I, it's, yeah, I guess when you do look back on it, it's really um, humbling, I guess, to know that you've, you've managed to win World Cups. Um, but yeah, I think like anyone, it's the experience that you have, I think, that is the, the best thing that goes with it. People always talk about our, we won two World Cups in 2009. Um, and I look back at the people involved then and you just think what amazing times. We had such brilliant memories. We were traveling the world. Um, you know, we were a genuine team. Um, I think probably because we weren't overly professional in terms of the support that we got. I think sometimes when money starts coming in, that can be, be challenging, but we only ever played for the passion of representing our country. So, um, and to yeah, I guess to, to win those World Cups and obviously the Ashes is is great. On top of being a dynamic fielder, Women's Cricket of the Year 
2010 and a, and a stroke maker, you were rightly regarded as the best fielder in the world. Um, was this like a natural ability or was it worked on? Was that like something that you sort of prided yourself on to get yourself into that professional game? Um, I think it was, I guess, a different a few things. Um, multi-sports, I think I play quite a lot of different sports and as a coach now, a lot of parents ask me, you know, my daughter loves cricket. When should she just only specialise in cricket? And I always say, just she shouldn't. She should go and play as many different sports as she can for as long as she can. Um, you look at other players around the world. Susie Bates, a New Zealand player, she she played basketball for her country. Um, Elise Perry played football for Australia. Um, Sophie Devine played hockey for New Zealand. So, um yeah, I always think multi-sports is, is really important. Um, and then just practice. Um, I remember my dad just used to whack tennis balls um, literally at me. And if I didn't catch them, then I probably would have lost my teeth. Um, <laughs> yeah, lots of practice and you have to enjoy it as well. People who don't enjoy fielding often don't make the best fielders, um, I, I think. Yeah, it's, I remember when I was playing, it used to be a little... It's got. I used to boundary riding. It was if you're a deep backward square leg and you've got deep mid wicket, just have a little game between yourselves. Go right. Who can throw it flattest? Who can stop two more and stuff like that? Just a yeah. just a really good way of uh, keeping it interesting because you do a lot of it, don't you? Mm, yeah, definitely. And yeah, you have to enjoy it, and that that's a really good way as well. It's just the interaction that you have with your own teammates, having mini competitions within the game, um, just especially for youngsters, you know. Mm. Don't blame them. Then, if they're playing a long game, it's hard to keep concentrating. <laughs> you know, having such an illustrious career after the amount of years that you played, you must have seen a huge amount of change go through on uh, in the women's game. You know, right from you know the the, the well, no professionalism right the way through to the full professionalism in the game. You know, what did that extra professionalism bring to the women's game and specifically into cricket? And more importantly, what's it going to do for it taking it forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, well, the initial sort of real um, short-term change was time on task for players. So just the fact that we could go up to Loughborough for three days a week, um, three to five days a week, and just up your skills, just get better at skills. Um, And actually, it was interesting because when we were made professional in 2014, a lot of the people who supported us in the women's game expected results very quickly. Um, And I think for us, that was a bit of a challenge because it's not the way it works. You know, just because we were getting paid, um, it just doesn't bring you results overnight. But in the short term, we could get our skills better. Um, But then I think, you know, it comes, what comes with that is you have to play more games. Um, And so I think moving forward, you know, if we can have more more countries who are professional not just at that elite level but at domestic level as well I think that is what will help drive the game forward um, because if if countries haven't got strong foundations underneath them they might have a successful international team that's only successful in the short term because you're not investing in in the game and that's what we found actually um, we were the only players in the country getting paid um, no one else was and so suddenly we had short-term success, but we didn't have the talent coming through. And I think that's now what the focus is for the ECB, which is is what we need. It's definitely great to see the ECB investing as much as it is into 
well, one junior cricket, but more importantly, you know, the women's game. So, yeah, it is really positive to see that going forward. Uh, what we'll do now, Lydia, is we're going to take a quick break and we're going to hear a short advert from our charity partners, the Lord's Taverners. The Lord's Taverners is the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. We break down barriers and empower disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. Our cricket programmes support some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK, using sport and recreation to build links and encouraging groups to play sport together. We tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and also isolation, something we are all feeling right now. Last year, our programmes impacted the lives of more than 12,000 young people and, with your support, will help even more in the future. Find out more and make a donation at lordstaverners.org and help us to continue our life-changing work. Thank you. Uh, thanks, as always, to the Lords Taverners. Uh, please don't forget that you can support this wonderful charity who uh, love to offer all children, no matter their circumstances, a sporting chance in life. Uh, to offer them your own personal support, please text 70331. That will send a £3 donation to the Lord's Taverners. Uh, please make sure that you're at least 16 years old and have the bill payers' permission if you are to do so. Um, so back to the interview. Uh, as you, you know by now, we're very, very uh, lucky to have with us Lydia Greenway, um, illustrious, incredible uh, career in the women's game. Um, moving on to kind of post-playing career, Lydia, uh, since retiring, it's it's fair to say. I mean, we have chats about business bits and you know in, in cricket uh, outside of this, but you've kept yourself pretty busy. Um, <laughs> we're going to take your coaching first. Was that something that you always wanted to do post your playing career? Yeah, I never really knew exactly what I wanted to do um, when I retired. Um, I always, whilst I was still playing, I'd always. Um, try and upskill myself in different things. So I got my personal training um, certificates. I did a, a degree through the Open University. Um, and then I did my coaching level three as well. And because I've always coached, it was quite a natural progression. Um, like I, I do love it. I love working with, you know, from schools and clubs all the way up to um, the sort of, I guess, the professional level as well. Um, and it's something that when you're a player, I think you take for granted how good your coaches are. Um, mm. And I think it's easy to think just because you're good at, a pl at playing the game, you, you automatically are a good coach. Um, and often that is the case, but not always. So I think I've realised that actually you have to really invest in, in your development as a coach. Um, and so I, I was lucky to spend some time out in, in Sydney this winter. And I was the assistant coach with the Sydney Sixers, um, which was a great opportunity because I was working with players who I had played against, some of the best players in the world, um, you know, Elise Perry, Alyssa Healy, um, and that was just brilliant. And so I think it's it's something that I always want to do, but as you know, John, I, I quite like doing other stuff. And for <laughs> me, that's um, that's for me, that's just what I enjoy. I, I think I'd struggle just to do one thing. It's it's nice to have a bit of variety, <laughs> a variety yeah, in life. <laughs> Yeah, we, we've been chatting to uh, Paul Franks recently. He's obviously the coach at Knotts and uh, been in the Abu Dhabi T10. And he was sort of saying within that that it's that constant need to keep challenging yourself as a coach, like you did as a player. And that's that's to make sure you keep developing means that you can keep helping the players develop. Is he thought was really important? You 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 go along with that. 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think, yeah, you can make a lot of mistakes when you go into coaching and you have to learn so quickly. I think the biggest thing I've learned is actually sometimes talking less is better, um, especially out in the Big Bash. We were in a tournament and in those sort of drop-in tournaments, the thing that I've found out and from chatting with other coaches, they just said your relationships with the players are so important. Often it doesn't matter too much of course, it matters about the technical side of it and all that stuff, but it's about giving the players confidence. Um, and so, yeah, like like a lot of coaches, I'm still learning. Um, got a huge amount to learn. You say that, um, funnily enough, the first time we actually ever spoke, you you were actually in Australia, so we had to then re reschedule the call for when for once you got back. Um, you, your coaching career has taken you all over the world, and like you say, working with you know Alyssa Healy, Elise Perry, two of the best players in the world. Um, how have you seen the game progressing in countries outside of the UK uh, where women's cricket has either been more popular than maybe it was here and maybe they're a bit more forward-thinking in Australia before we were necessarily, but then also in other countries that are still trying to get to the levels of where England are? Because we are seen as one of the powerhouses of women's cricket, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And I think it's sort of England and Australia in the women's game have been chasing each other a bit. We were... We went first in 2014 with the professional contracts. Australia matched us and then went even further. Um, and then they have, you know, in all honesty, they've kicked on a huge amount. And that, to me, it's down to their domestic structure. It's the way that they have the, the big bash teams, the men and the women's team, sit under the same umbrella. Um, you go to a big bash game um, or you see it on the TV and even if it's a women's game, I shouldn't say even if, if it's a women's game, um, you'll see young boys um, in the crowd, you'll see grown men in the crowd, you know, lads on a night out, and, and they love it. Um, and and that's, you know, that's what you want to see. Um, I was lucky to be out in Melbourne for the World Cup final, the recent T20. Um, and you, again, it was the same. You just saw, people didn't see the gender of the game um, that was being played. They just saw the sport. Um, and that's, you know, that's brilliant to see. And I guess that's my hope for the game is that more countries have that buy-in from the general public for the women's side of, of cricket. You think we've the ECB have almost missed a trick? We had Simon Hughes on the other a couple of weeks ago, and we were asking him about obviously the hundred. We the English created T20. It's an English uh, product, but we kind of let the rest of the world take our, you know, toy and run off with it and kind of make... The, the Australians, I think, have done an incredible job with the, the Big Bash League. I think it's one of the most... Yeah. I'm not necessarily sure about some of the new rules that they brought in this year, but I think what they've done with it in terms of how they market it and commercialised it and brought it to the, the public is amazing. Do you think that um, the, the, the women's game in England, well, you obviously think that that would be served so much of a, a better purpose if it was run in the same way as... The, but that could be put in place by the ECB, couldn't it, to run it as a, you know, in a much more similar way to the Big Bash? Yeah, and I think, if I understand what you're saying, I think what the 100 will bring is that um, parity with the two, with the men's team. So, yeah. you know, you have um, the Ovid Invincibles, you have the men's and the women's team under the same brand. And yeah. I think it's really important because then both teams are on the same platform. They have the same fan base. And I think that's what it works so well in Australia. Um, and so, yeah, I think 
you know, regardless of what people think about the 100 in the format itself, if you strip away what the format actually is and you look at how they're marketing it for the men's and the women's, then I think that's the right step, um, the, the right step forward, definitely. Do you think there's been a dramatic change over your sort of playing career in the way that um, women's cricket is perceived by the traditional cricket followers? Obviously, to sell out that the World Cup final at Lords was a massive, massive thing. Um, but do you, th- do you think there's been a, a dramatic change in perception from the traditional traditional cricket supporters? Um, yeah, possibly. I think the biggest thing that I think which ha- I think has catapulted the women's game into the spotlight is just the coverage of it because the coverage of the game then reaches people who didn't know there was this great product out there and so suddenly those people who hadn't had access to it before are there at the games, I think. And then in and amongst that, you have got the traditionalists who have said, oh, look at these girls, they can throw, they can catch. And they're, you know, they're like, oh, they're good. And so some of those have been converted. Um, but you will always get the um, the old-fashioned attitude, unfortunately. That's just, that comes with all the sports. Um and it was funny, actually, I meant to say this earlier, back in um, 2005, we won the Ashes and as had the men. And they were obviously, that was massive for us as, as English people. Um, and the reward for it was the open bus top, um, you know, tour around London, which we were on. And we were on the bus behind the guys. And so the, the guys were going through and we were behind them and there were, people looking up, up at us and they had no idea who we were and you could hear in the crowds and we did actually hear someone said oh they're the um the wives and the girlfriend <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, um, but we didn't care we were having a great time you know a lot of a lot of people knew 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 what we'd done but i think um you know how long ago was that 15 16 years ago mm. but yeah i think since then i think generally that the public are, are pretty um pretty good it's, it's getting better was there anybody that pulled the Freddie Flint off? Don't answer that. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little bit back closer to home, you've launched um, the female cricket st- uh, store and and uh, cricket for girls. Um, and, and looking at more of it from an equipment side, this is equipment that is specifically meant for women. So, you know, uh, w- this is this is obviously a fantastic initiative. Tell us a little bit, a bit more about it. Yeah, it came about um, through the first lockdown, actually. Um, I had quite a lot of time on my hands and it was something that I'd I'd always wanted to do, um, mainly because of the conversations that I had had um, in schools, in clubs, the parents, and so many of them had no idea where to go um, because obviously there's some amazing um, brands out there who have online equipment and everything but it's it's actually quite hard to find the women and girls specific stuff and it's also hard to find information about what they should buy and so um I just thought right I'll just give it a go and um so I teamed up with with some brands um who do a brilliant job um I don't know if I can name them on here yeah yeah uh, you can yeah yeah, yeah so um Kookaburra who people would be aware of but uh, mm. Vi- <laughs> 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 sorry Jono um uh, uh Viking and SM so they I sort of just got in touch with them because I was aware that they had been really proactive in what they were doing for the women's game they'd done a lot of research they'd spoken to the players and they'd developed ranges and so 
I thought if I could build a platform which had all of this brilliant equipment in one place and do some videos to help parents because the girls playing the game now are, uh, follow a completely different pathway than what I did. A lot of the girls don't have male relatives in the game and they often get introduced to it at school. So um, that was really where the idea came from. And then, um, yeah, just sort of went from there and then COVID happened and um, we're in lockdown again. <laughs> on, that, on the equipment side, Lydia, can you explain to us why it's not only a, a kind of mental thing for girls and women to have their own lines of equipment, but it's also like a, there's a playability aspect to it as well, isn't it? Because if they're expected to use, you know, the, the more traditional men's or boys sizes that don't necessarily fit the right way, then that can have an impact on the, the, the quality of the cricket that they're able to play. Yeah, it can. And I think the, the changes on the equipment is they're small, but they're, they have a big impact. So, Jono, we were discussing, you know, with the pads, it's the straps. Um, they don't need to be as long because generally the female body, the calves are thinner. So you haven't got this overhang hanging strap, which could result in you getting given out if the ball hits it and the, the batter, the umpire thinks it's the bat. Um, to the wrist straps on the gloves um, and the, the weights of the bat. So um, they, they, they sound small changes, but they're actually really important ones. Um, and so, and yeah, and, and that ultimately will help the females perform better as well. From a, from a mental point of view, though, I think that it'd be incredibly important for female cricketers, women cricketers, girls cricketers, to actually be able to go to somewhere like a female cricket store and actually see stuff that's been specifically designed that is it, it's girls' and women's equipment rather than just having to look at something that says boys or youths' boys or men's stuff on it. I think that's, that is important as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's one of the barriers that is still in the game. I think there's you know, a lot around the language that's used. Um, as you say, the labels on the kit, um, automatically that puts young girls off um and it was really nice actually i had a a nice letter from a mum um of two daughters the mum had never played the game no she didn't have any family relatives who had played the game um but she just said you know to be able to go to a place and know that a cricket ball was the right size for them and she didn't have to look through all the different options she just said it you know it took away any sort of stress um and so if we can do that for a few people, then I think hopefully that's a, a good thing to be happening. Yeah, never. Uh, to be fair, with my sparrow legs, I could have done with some shorter straps. <laughs> I was thinking the same <laughs> thing for <laughs> me. I was like, I could do with some of these shorter straps. <laughs> Proper chicken legs. <laughs> I'd always had to like, double and triple fold it just to, just to get around. Maybe I've done them up. I'm like an upside-down triangle. That's my problem. I've got a really thin <laughs> bottom half and then there's just barrel on top of my hips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laura, can you just explain for us the, the Cricket for Girls initiative, um, sort of how it works, the numbers that you're looking to affect and um, how many people you think you brought to the game through your, your softball festival? Yeah, so we um, so with Cricket for Girls, so the way that we started initially was to um, sort of um, deploy a load of female coaches into schools and, and help deliver um, lessons in that way. Um, but we quickly found that at the time, there weren't that many, um, that there weren't enough female coaches to be delivering a programme of that scale. So we actually changed our model to um, training the teachers. So we we now 
predominantly do a lot of teacher training. We will still do the coaching. So we're running a roadshow um, this year where I'll go into clubs and schools and deliver um, masterclasses and things like that. Um, but ultimately, our, our main aim is to just inspire the girls. Um, and I think it's really important at that grassroots level that you stay away from technique. I think that's mm. as cricket coaches, we're so passionate about the technique of the game that sometimes we can forget actually just let them hit the ball as hard as they can. And I think that's really important at that sort of introductory level, especially. Yeah, I think it relates back to that point you've sort of made earlier about the fact you've played multiple sports to get into it. And also the fact that I'm an idiot because I just called you Laura. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Oh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Um, yeah, so obviously you go back to what you were talking about earlier with your fielding, that's like a multiple sport uh, upbringing can bring a variety of skills that can be then adapted to to, to cricket or to whichever sport these the, the, the ladies and the girls decide to go into after that. It, it doesn't necessarily, obviously you're targeting cricketers, but if you're bringing about skills, it's, it can take them across multiple forums. Yeah, and I think as well, cricket's a sport where you do see a lot of late bloomers, so to speak. So I think, and, and equally, if they do specialise too early, you also see a lot of, I think it would happen in the boys' game, you get, you know, an under, a 12-year-old called Johnny and apparently is going to play for England, but he falls off a cliff when he gets to 15. And so I think it's really important that... You know, parents, coaches, teachers are mindful of that. Um, and so playing multiple sports will only ever um, keep the balance, really, um, of, of what's important. And I guess that helps mentally as well. Otherwise, you can scar a, a young child, I think. Yeah. Um, I guess, kind of finally, um, go, you, you, you've said openly that your greatest achievement was the 50-over World Cup win in, in 2009. Um, obviously, the men famously had a dreadful 2015 tournament and then went on to, to win you know, the final of all finals in 2019. Kind of similar style, um, I guess, in a way to the, to the women's side because 2005 wasn't a particularly successful tournament for the women's side, not reaching the semifinals, to then go on and, and win it, obviously, famously in 2009. What was it about... How, what did the team do differently, do you think, between... Uh, 2005 and 2009 across that four-year period because you were yet to go professional. What what was it? Was it a change in coaching staff, a change of how things were, were kind of done on a day-to-day -day basis that allowed you to then go and beat the Kiwis in that final? Yeah, so I think it was um, a couple of things. I think our coach, um, so Mark Mark Lane, um, led us brilliantly. Um, obviously, our captain, Charlotte Edwards, they had a great relationship. But I think if you talk about secret ingredients, it was the, the way that the team was with, with each other. Um, we'd created an environment which allowed us to be really honest with each other. Um, and that was in the form of this um, speed dating type um, uh, thing that we did where we had to tell each of our teammates two things that they brought to the team that was really positive um, and two which were actually quite negative. Um, and those conversations allowed us to... Um, I guess, be held accountable um, and realise that the team was more important. So um, for, for me, I think that was one of the most most important things. And what were they? Are we allowed to know? <laughs> I mean, because that, I mean, you've got to be, I mean, that's a real brutal, honest look at your teammates, but also yourself to say, actually, 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really good at this. Just in case you weren't aware, I think this is what I'm really good at. Uh, but also, these are my the bits that, you know, and people obviously say, say stuff like, oh, I'm not often on the bus on time or yeah. whatever. But I imagine some people have said, well, actually, no, I don't think, I think this is something where I can really improve. And that process, you would then imagine, could be really, really beneficial. Yeah, it was. And especially, it was uncomfortable, I remember, because you're doing, um, you're saying these negative things to senior players in the side like at the time I was quite new into the team and you're having to be really honest with someone who's played for their country for 10 years um but I think everyone actually really respected that and I know it's not saying our skills were the secret ingredient but I think when you're on the pitch and you've been that honest with people actually it helps you win games that sort of team togetherness um so yeah I, I can't actually remember what mine were it must have been bad, though, I'm sure. Was, was, was there anyone that kicked off? <laughs> um, I, I, I am trying to remember this. I can't actually remember. Um, it's interesting, though, when you watch the body language of people and you feel yourself do it, you get told the you negative. Yeah. And suddenly you're like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amazing. But, yeah. I can imagine, I can imagine uh, Brunty was quite blunt with people. She was on the uh, MCC YC's with me. Oh uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, she wasn't she wasn't backwards in coming forwards. Oh, she's great. She's yeah, she, brilliant. Oh, she's brilliant. But, uh, yeah. When when she said something, she she'll be honest. She's always the one in in team meetings. You know, she'll be the one who's. Have you seen the um the Aussie um ah oh, what's the, the thing called? Yeah, the test. Was I think that where they did they did an eight part series trying to tell the rest of the world that they actually weren't all shit blokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's one, and it was um, I think it was Kawaja, and he was the one who was always, you know, yeah. being honest, and yeah, yeah. nothing was going to do it. But that's Brunty. Yeah. Well, she's from Yorkshire, isn't she? Bless her. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just inbuilt in Yorkshire folk, isn't it? Bless her. But yeah. I've seen um, I've seen a few things that Catherine's done. She seems uh, she seems great, and like you say, really upfront, really honest, and yeah. and actually has has faced her own struggles, hasn't she? You know, in terms of um, different bits and pieces, uh, which which was great, and I think the fact that um, all professional sports people are willing to come and talk about challenges that they've had uh, is fantastic because then it, it almost not makes it doesn't make it normal of course it's not normal but it allows people who look up to yourself and, and people like Catherine and Freddie Flintoff and whoever else that actually mm -hmm. that you know it happens to famous people as well you know these people that you know normal folk if you like put on a pedestal yes. it makes it almost relatable and, and and we see that other people who we we kind of um think of as heroes actually go through normal kind of tough things too so um, yeah. Lydia, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you nice so much job. for agreeing to come on and talk to us. I think it's amazing what you're trying to do for the, yeah, the girls and women's game, not only um, here, but also further afield and, and, and globally. Uh, long may that continue. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm busy screwing away on uh, ideas for Woodstock as to how we can start to dominate the, the <laughs> women's nice. game. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful to talk to you. So thank you very much. Right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to chat to you all. We're uh, we're now going to try and take ten pounds off you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I think Simon's matching. Are you matching, Simon, or am I matching? I'll do it. I'll go this time. Right, cool. For calling, for calling, for calling the Laura halfway through the interview, I'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Actually, yeah. No, I love it when it goes like that because normally if I say am I matching, they both just go yeah. 
um, right, okay, Eugene, do you want to ask the questions and I'll do I the answers? Do, yeah, no problem. So, Perfect. Uh, Laura, no, Lydia, <laughs> <laughs> your test debut was against Australia at the Gabba. Who was the player of the match? Oh, God. Um, we talked about her earlier. Yeah, I. she was the first person who came into my head, but then I was thinking, was it Belinda Clark? But it will have to be Catherine Fitzpatrick. Yes. Correct. Yes. <laughs> right. Well number done, two. question number two. I like the fact you've given, you, you've given clues, Jono. Well, aren't you doing it? Yeah, yeah, I got that completely wrong. I thought for a minute I was yeah. matching, and then <laughs> you see now, completely wrong. Right, question number two: Who was the player of the match in the two thousand and nine World Cup final? Ooh. Can I just get this right? If I get it right, does that mean that you guys have to match it? That means we don't give money. We don't. You don't give money if you get them right. No, I should Although, be getting... I reckon I'm, I'm going to make Simon put 50 quid in. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I'm going to put 20 quid in. <laughs> you going to put your money in anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Nikki Shaw. Correct. That sounds uh, like it's going quite well. Let's see how this one goes. Question number three. How many career ODI boundaries did you hit? <laughs> Includes fours and sixes. Now, you get a little bit of leeway. Um I can tell you I hit a lot of singles and a lot of twos. I wasn't that powerful. Um, oh, I've got no idea. Um, 150? Yeah. 239. Oh, okay. You completely undersold yourself. Yeah, you're going to say you've undersold yeah. yourself. <laughs> right, well, fin finally, no. we've got, we chalk one up. Yeah, we've yeah. got two quid. <laughs> we got two quid in. This is one that I'm never going to experience in my life, but um, how many international not-outs do you have? Again, no idea. Um, let's have a guess at 30. It's the kind of question where you want to undersell yourself this one as well, isn't it? <laughs> so how old are you when you, if you are someone? Or, yeah, you get asked how old 51. Uh, no, 51. And finally, question number five. How many catches did you take? Cross format. International. Uh... 120. Oh! oh! <laughs> 121. 121. But you get you get a leeway, so we you definitely get that one right. Okay. So, that's hell of it. That's hell of it. And the other yeah. two, you've completely undersold yourself. So yeah. that's, uh, that's incredible. So Simon's putting in twenty pounds. Yeah. And Lydia's putting in four pounds, uh, which will be set, flying its way to the Lord's Taverners, the wonderful charity that it is. Uh, Lydia Greenway, again, thank you so much for agreeing to join us. It's been an absolute pleasure learning from you and listening to you, and talk, you know, hearing you talk about the amazing things that you helping to achieve in the, the women's game globally. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And, uh, and yeah, to, uh, to finish off, as always, here are a note from the only bat company that people should consider, Woodstock Cricket. <laughs> Cheers, Lydia. <laughs> Thanks, Lydia. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky. With so many options to choose from, how do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, there really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock Cricket have been producing award-winning, high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, 
Woodstock Cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.